Hello and welcome to Story Untold. I'm Martin Bauman and today we're back with part two of a conversation with Keely Yuyan. If you haven't listened to the first one yet, you might want to go back and do that now. You'll get a better sense of context for the episode ahead. On the last one, we got into Keeley's long path to becoming a photographer. Today, we pick up where that left off. Along the way, we detour into his time learning survival skills and what it means to co-write new Indigenous narratives in his work. Here it is. This question of what stories do you want to tell and why, like I want to linger on that for a moment because it's that's kind of like the challenge that you're given there by the the photography consultant right is find what speaks to you yeah yeah that's right what what is it for you like what stories are you drawn to and why um well over time it certainly evolved uh, i would say um my my vision is largely drawn by my uh need to um need to work with indigenous communities. So um, I look at a lot of indigenous issues and then uh, also issues concerning the human relationship to the land, primarily wilderness. So I'm really interested in um, remote wilderness areas and conservation and wildlife um, of those regions, um, but most especially how human beings relate to that. So I tend to be the least interested in doing things like going out uh, on something like a safari, for example, yeah. Yeah. where I have no connection to it at all, versus when I enter um, an environment or um, an ecosystem because of my relationship with an indigenous community of some kind, mm -hmm. I tend to start to see the land from the the point of view of the people. And then I develop my own relationship with the land too, of course. you know, I, I can't help but do that. But once I start to develop a relationship with the land and the way that the other people relate to the land, and I start to fall in love with that place as well, and um, and with the animals and plants and um, the well, the, in my case, the ice and the snow <laughs> and the water. <laughs> uh, one of the great things I think about journalism in any of its forms, whether that's photojournalism, whether that's any kind, it's it's the people that it introduces you to, the stories that you get to hear. Um, one of the things that you've done, you've joined whale hunters in northern Alaska. Like, what is it like to haul a whale out of the water? <laughs> Hauling a whale out of the water is just the most amazing thing. Uh, first of all, because it, you think of this as a, like a um, intense physical activity, but really the dominant feeling uh, of towing a whale out is um, that it's a community affair. So, so there's 50 to 100 people and everyone comes out, you know, all the villagers come out and they, they show up on their snow machines and everyone gathers and, you know, sort of the, put the call out. And then anywhere from 30 minutes to six hours later, everyone shows up in various states and the, the whale is sitting there and it gets tied up by the flukes and um, gets hauled up onto the edge of the ice, which so we're floating on top of the Arctic Ocean um, on this sheet of ice. And, and it has to be at least three feet thick. But sometimes it, uh, and it, it sometimes you try to haul it up on stuff that's thinner and the ice will break, which is not good. <laughs> um, you know, but it's attached to a series of block and tackles, which are um, essentially like really advanced police, complicated pulley systems where you have multiple pulleys. And then we use these ropes attached to the whale, and then you get fifty person on the fifty people on the line, and everyone pulls. Then they they they'll they'll yell all hands, and then everyone will get on there, and then pull 
for five to 10 minutes um, and just will travel like hundreds of feet. And in that moment, you know, as we're pulling, because of the ratio of the pulleys, the whale will inch up like six inches or something, you know. So um, in that process, we're able to pull something that's much heavier out, out onto the ice, but it takes a long time. You know, we'll be, might be there for eight hours uh, with 100 people variously like getting in and out jumping in and out as we're pulling the pulling it and then resetting the block and tackle and it's a lot of fun is it you know it happens and everyone's pulling with all their might there's grunting and slipping and uh but then also you know that someone will walk out on top of the whale cut off a, a chunk of the muktuk the blubber and then cook it up for the for everyone to share and so it's this very communal affair and um i love it there's just this, this um yeah, this amazing sense of being bonded over this single thing that needs to be done, which is to feed the feed the village. Yeah. While we're talking about the outdoors, uh, good place to introduce a name uh, you brought up earlier, Lynx Vilden. Tell me about who who is she and how did she you know how did how did you meet her? How did she then influence you? <laughs> um, I met Lynx um, when I first left college and um, arrived at the um, at a primitive skills rendezvous so um, primitive skills being this this whole sort of subculture and world of, of people who are interested in uh, getting closer to the land in this kind of um, old technology kind of way so um, a lot of people that are interested in stuff that hunter gatherers did um in this very universal manner so that, that's one of the things that's that's interesting and strange and different about primitive skills is that uh, i guess it's about uh, living close to the land devoid of a cultural context which um at that time really appealed to me because i was feeling a bit lost mm. <laughs> uh, uh, and uh, Lynx showed up and I remember seeing this woman who was uh, dressed all in buckskin and just had this really amazing uh, sense sensibility around her you know she's just it was very grounded and and weathered you know by the by the sun uh, and I thought to myself oh who 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 is this woman you know and and, and I think she thought the same about me um, the primitive skills world as I've really come to understand it now is it is really consists of a lot of people who are who are pretty privileged, you know, and, uh, mm-hmm. in the sense that you can just go to the woods and forget about the the rest of life, you know. So you don't you don't see uh, it, it lends itself to a certain number, like type of person, right. and we don't see many people of color in the primitive skills world, which is one of the um, which is one of the I think biggest tragedies um, of it. But you know, Lynx saw me, and so I must have been kind of a rare thing, and and she, you know, like. Uh, upon meeting her, like she immediately we gravitated towards each other. And um, when I met her, um, we we talked very quickly and uh, decided that she wanted to invite me to come out on one of her early projects. And at that time, um, uh, it, what Lynx wanted to do was she wanted to see if it was possible for people to live out on the land um, completely devoid of modern technology. In, in fact, actually, not only, not only modern technology, but just go completely Stone Age mm-hmm. uh, and um, not rely on anything from the outside world. And so um, me already having uh, been a hunter, um, having grown up with, um, uh, you know, uh, hunting and fishing in my life, uh, it wasn't, uh, you know, it was that was an exciting idea. Like, oh, I'm going to go 
run run off in the woods and uh, try to get you know even more basic um, and do some more hunting and fishing and just hanging out with people uh, who share that same love. But they, you know, then there's the other part of it too, which was that um, uh, I was really interested in the you know I was really interested in in uh, finding out more about how uh, like I guess like trying to live the way that my ancestors did. Um, I don't I don't think at the time I realized that it, I was kind of just trying to live out some of the stories of my childhood heroes. Mm. You know, um, a lot of the Nanai heroes that I, I grew up um, grew up listening to their stories. Um, but I, I think in a way I wanted to know like who 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 am I and uh, am I going to be able to live up to my, to my heroes, you know, who, who not only were able to live out on the land with very few tools, but also just to be so deeply connected from a cultural point of view to the land itself, you know, to have the land speak to them. Hmm. Uh, and that comes, I, I understand now that that sensibility it, it can be called an animism, but at the time, I didn't really know what that was. I just knew, I think, between stories that um, I had heard, uh, like Derso Usula, which is um, uh, an Akira Kurosawa film about the most famous Nanai person of all time, um, Derso Usula, who was, uh, who was a famous Nanai trapper in, um, in Siberia. And then I also, uh, my grandmother's stories also contain a lot of little hints of animism, you know, things like um, everything. Animism is essentially this idea that everything in uh, the natural world or everything in the world contains spirit. Mm -hmm. And uh, so everything animate or inanimate is alive to a certain degree, has a spirit. And um, those spirits have their own agendas and they're, you know, they, they have their own uh, um, they have their own existences. You know, and so um, to be able to see the world from an animistic point of view is kind of an, uh, an amazing thing. It's, I think, for Western audiences, it's really tough to think about what it's like. Um, uh, and I think um, movies, even Hollywood movies, have done probably the best job of relaying what that's like to be able to see the world from an animistic point of view. But um, some great examples might be like... Um, uh, the movie Princess Mononoke. From yeah, that's exactly Ayakia's. what I was just thinking. Yeah. Oh yeah, it's a really good one. That's it's like one of the most animistic uh, films out there. <laughs> mm -hmm. yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. That might be a little obscure for some people. <laughs> uh, and then you know, even this idea that like the, the the this Western notion of ghosts and that kind of thing that that comes probably from an uh, originally from an animistic point of view. You know, this idea that people when they die that they still linger around and that their spirits still exist um, and that you can commune with them, you can talk to them. That comes originally from a time when Europeans were animistic as well, you know? So, um, yeah, I think that it, it, it gives you a sense, but you can imagine that instead of just people being ghosts, that, um, you know, every rock, every leaf or every tree, you know, every every single entity out there has a spirit associated with it. And they all want to protect their their worlds. And so living in harmony with the natural world, living in harmony with the rest of the world, period, meant that um, you had to be able to appeal to the spirits and they would help you do things like make sure that the salmon came in every year or, mm -hmm. uh, you know, make sure there was a good harvest. Uh, and as a result, 
you made deals with the spirits and um, you had to do the things that they considered important. And one of those things was uh, preventing environmental degradation. You know, you, you can't like piss off the spirit of the river by dumping things in it or putting a dam on it <laughs> right, right. Um, or else then your fish wouldn't come back um, yeah. in, in subsequent years. And so like, I think that a lot of people think of this uh, um, indigenous peoples as this kind of uh, have this sort of maybe woo woo relationship with the environment. Like, Oh, everyone is so noble and, uh, and so in tune with the land. Um, kind of idea they can't ruin the land because they're so in tune with it. But, but really it, what, what it comes down to is that indigenous peoples are by and large, almost everyone is, uh, comes from an animistic point of view. So they're seeing the world in terms of all of these different, um, spirits in their doing all these things to avoid offending spirits where they're trying to like appeal to spirits to get them to do things. Mm. And so as a result, um, they end up protecting the natural world, you know, that because the natural world speaks to them and, mm. and that's how it, that's what it is really like, but it's been very simplified because Westerners, um, don't have that sense anymore. Yeah. Uh, yeah. That that's how the world works. And I'll also say too, that, um, just because, um, there, people have an animistic point of view. Um, another thing that, that Westerners um, do nowadays is they don't, or maybe, I don't know about nowadays, but they, they, there's not a belief, uh, there's a belief that two things that are in conflict with each other, that are, are that are um, two different worldviews that are not the same can't coexist. Right. Um, they conflict with each other. But I, this is one of the things that when, I, when you look at other cultures you find to be largely untrue across the board. Different cultures often have multiple worldviews at the same time. Individuals often have more than one worldview that they carry at one time, even if they contradict to each other. Mm -hmm. And so, for example, like I very much believe in science. You know, I'm 100% a believer in science. It's really powerful and it allows us to explain the world, you know, um, extrapolate what we know into the future. Mm -hmm. um, so science has really powerful explanatory power because it looks at the, the world from all its like sort of constituent parts. But then um, animism doesn't have that kind of same kind of um, explanatory power. Like it's harder to predict the future based on what animism tells us. But at the same time, animism is extremely useful. So um, as a worldview, if you have an animistic worldview, you can't really destroy the land base that you're living on you know so the um if you a community that has an animistic worldview is not going to put up dams it's not going to tolerate the kinds of environmental destruction that um a world only built on science is because um a world built on science is at its core is exactly the opposite of being holistic you know science is all about looking things in terms of taking things apart yeah. at, their, at their very core. And, um, and animism is a holistic worldview. It looks at this whole, all of existence, uh, all of its different constituent parts as being composed of a bunch of spirits that need to be placated. And it's this whole system of relationships. So it's the spirits themselves are important, but what really matters is the relationships between them all. So when, when people 
and um, the spirits of the forest or the, for the spirits of the, the river um, have a bad relationship with each other, that's when the bad things happen. <laughs> mm -hmm. You know, it's when volcanoes erupt or that's when uh, rivers flood their banks. So that's when the salmon don't return. And so um, as a result, you do everything that you can to try to make sure that uh, that we don't uh, end up destroying the salmon run. Uh, we don't end up uh, destroying the river, et cetera, and that kind of thing. So uh, having those multiple worldviews, I think, is a pretty amazing thing. And you, know, you can switch back and forth uh, between them. You know, sometimes you see the world from a certain point of view. And another time, you know, in a different mood <laughs> around different people, whatever it is, different context, you might think of it in a different way. But it's really helpful. It's really useful to be able to think about um, two things at different times in different ways, I think. Um, it's really a much more rounded way of looking at the world. Yeah. So, so back to that period in time for a moment. Uh, you're a university student. You're in college. And uh -huh. you come across links. And uh, you mentioned, you know, feeling lost. You're looking for, for direction, for meaning, or, or what's that, what's kind of that juncture that uh, you're in at the time? Um, yeah, I, I guess I was feeling, uh, I was feeling lost. I was feeling uh, definitely a bit uh, strange for my parents. You know, they, there was a period of time and they were working really hard to try to steer me on the path of going into uh, some, some kind of stable career, you know, for, for immigrant parents, the idea, of, you know, they come, they just came from a really hard life of mm -hmm. uh, essentially being refugees, you know, and so the idea that that um, their kid would go into the arts was just sort of inconceivable to them. Right. Uh, but looking back on it now, now that um, I, I, you know, I'm uh, a professional artist, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, uh, um, I can see that I, I was always, always. Um, attracted to the arts like I could never really get art out of me mm. um, you know uh, in, in school I studied various things and switched around a whole bunch and eventually I got out with an interdisciplinary degree um, but I switched into design for uh, a good long while uh, before I graduated uh, and that's ultimately one part of the degree that I that I came up with but I, you know I was I'm just interested in all of these different aspects of art and creative expression and have always been. And so, uh, you know, my parents were just pulling me in this direction. I was just like, no. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, so we weren't getting along very well uh, at the time. And I just uh, felt like I really needed to get back and uh, connect with the connect with the land again, which is one of the, the few places, I guess, where um, I'm able to quiet my mind and let my, uh, my spirit be free. You know, it's like kind of like, um, I guess you would call it uh, finding peace within yeah. yourself. You know, yeah. I was looking for, looking for that, that sense of peace inside myself. Yeah. So I'm guessing, you know, uh, parents have a hard time adjusting to your son going off and, and pursuing the arts. It's like, <laughs> how do you then say, hey, I'm going to go and spend a month uh, practicing what it's like to live in the Stone Age? Like that's, a, that's a, <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> well, they were very unhappy about yeah. all of that they, they were very very unhappy about about all of that but you know this is basically i was just you, you know it's like at, at a certain point um i kind of just said uh screw it i'm just gonna do what i need to do yeah uh yeah that that the whole chunk of time there was probably about a you know a decade through most of my 20s really when i, I was um doing all of these things that related to um getting closer to my indigenous ancestry and then also getting closer to, to just living 
closer to the land in general. Mm-hmm. Um, and at the time, also, um, when I was in my early 20s, I didn't, I, didn't, I didn't even know that my grandmother was an indigenous person. So I had grown up knowing that her side of the family was different mm-hmm. and, and that we were Nanai Chitza, but I didn't really know what that meant. You know, mm-hmm. I, when you grow up in a, in a certain context, and also just because there's this language barrier too, right? So my parents were speaking to me in Mandarin, which I speak fluently, but there's many, many words and many bits of vocabulary that I don't know. And so sometimes there's a lot of things that my parents would say, um, especially place names and things. Then, you know, as a kid, you just kind of learn to, uh, you, you learn a lot of words and things through context. Right. Right. Um, but there are a lot of instances when it's not possible to figure out what something means on based in context, Yeah, you know, and then as a kid, a lot of times you just don't really ask questions necessarily. You're just trying right. to figure things out. Uh, so I didn't really know for a long time. And then eventually uh, when I did find out, a lot of things started to click and fall into place and, and make more sense. Um, and, you know, my parents were not big on, uh, you know, they they weren't going to 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 encourage any of it. Like my mom told me at one point in time uh, when I was like on the road uh, doing primitive skill stuff, she was like, you know, I came from a, a, a life of living in, in, in huts and living out on the land. Like right. that we came to America so that you wouldn't have to do that. <laughs> right. So for right. her, it was really negative because um, all of that was just survival for her. You know, she wanted to be able to get away from having to worry about what it was like living day to day um, or, you know, hour to hour and what it was like to have to feed her, just, just be able to put food in her mouth. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So you're going to this, you're like 19 years old when you're going to, uh, to this survival skills camp or thereabouts or, and, and what are you learning? Like what, what do you actually, what does that look like in practicality then that, that month that you spend, uh, with links and the others on that? Uh... Oh yeah. Um, yeah. So I don't know if I would call it a survival skills camp, uh, per se. Uh, <laughs> That's a whimsical is... look at things. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Because that that implies that it was organized, which it wasn't. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, it wasn't nearly that kind of organization. Basically, Lynx would come and hang out, and um, she would uh, teach me and uh, Chris, who was one of the other early participants that year, uh, what what you know some of these basic skills that she'd learned. So we learned um, a bunch of high tanning, basketry skills, um, and I spent a lot of time just kind of playing, experimenting, and, and doing things. So I was learning from books as well, um, and then from other people that had been at the primitive skills gatherings. Uh, all of these sort of basic skills over time. Um, I was, at the time, also I had really gotten into archery and uh, primitive bow making. Mm-hmm. Uh, so like, um, yeah, ar- archery bows. And so I was making wooden bows. I was making a lot of them, actually. I got really obsessed for a while. <laughs> uh, and I was making like one a week for a bit. And at that time, I, I really learned uh, a whole lot about trees and wood and all of all of the different things that are associated with uh, hunting. You know, because um, when you hunt with a bow it, and you make the bow and the arrows and all of the different constituent parts from the land, you know, from the trees and from the, um, the, 
willows or the hazel shoots or whatever it is that you use to make your arrows. And then you fletch it with the feathers of geese and all this kind of stuff. Every single aspect of that is a way that you develop a relationship with the land. So like we were talking about animism before, this is, um, it's all about those relationships. Mm-hmm. So uh, that way of relating to um, the, the spirit of goose um, or spirit of geese, um, you know, is uh, like by taking its feathers and using them, by burning the edges of the, the feathers to shape them, and then uh, wrapping them around the arrow, you have to figure out which feathers are which direction, which come from which wing, and then you learn about the different types of feathers, you know, so um, there are only so many feathers on a, on a single bird that are really good for fletching an arrow. And so the the different feathers, like the primary wing feathers and the secondary wing feathers and all those kind of stuff, like I wasn't learning, I didn't know that, that that's what the name of those feathers were, you know, mm-hmm. that, oh, I've got like uh, a primary wingtip feather. No, no, no. Like I, I was just plucking the feathers from the geese and then looking at them and, and after shooting them, realizing, oh, actually that those these feathers I'm using are not stiff enough. These mm-hmm. don't work. You know, and then you just develop all these relationships because every time I'd see a goose, I'd have that relationship with it. You know, I'd eaten them. <laughs> yeah. uh, I'd spent a lot of time waiting around in, uh, in tidal estuaries, like waiting for them, you know, in the marsh, spending a lot of time like where they were just out of reach, you know, where I'd be listening to them honking at each other and then kind of developing this love for the quiet symphony that they have, you know, when they would be around dabbling and um, eating water plants and just getting into that flow of what it's like to listen to the spirit of these amazing creatures, you know, kind of wandering about doing their thing um, and sort of forgetting where I was or who I was, you know, forgetting my sense of self and just listening to the world around me, you know. Um, and so that was in a really amazing time for me. I spent a lot of time inside my head working on these craft skills, you know, learning things like basketry from lynx. Yeah. And then uh, that alternated with spending out time on on the land, hunting uh, ground squirrels and doing other kinds of things where I was completely taken away outside of my head and um, put into this observation mode, into this uh, flow flow mode, basically, Mm -hmm. uh, just being out and then listening to the development of my relationship with uh, nature even more deeply. It was a pretty, pretty amazing amazing time when I think about it. Yeah, I think there's there's a, you know, there's definitely a strong pull nowadays and, and probably increasingly so uh, for those sorts of things, uh, those sorts of skills that uh, have often been forgotten or, or a connection to the land that it often feels more distant, just the way that, uh, you know, at least in North America, the way we typically live in, in Canada, the United States, seems more and more of that. There's a pull towards that kind of thing of, of wanting to find opportunities to get outdoors and to be able to learn how to look after yourself without uh, all of the conveniences that we've been afforded. Um, yeah. So so uh, there's something to that as well, I think, that um, that's particularly appealing. Yeah, I, I agree. I agree. I think that, that many people are, you know, in, in this, uh, I think, one of the uh, one of the best explanations I, I, I've ever um, heard and really thought about for a long period of time about how how people are in the world and how how it explains people's behavior is uh, as people's identities. Um, you know, like uh, 
uh, essentially to a large degree how people are shaped and how, what the choices that they make are very much based on who they think they are you know how they identify um in the world and uh, i think for many people um this in america especially the search for identity is is um almost um for a lot of people is even almost like at a crisis level mm-hmm. um there is so much sort of strife um, between different people. You can see all the kind of tribalism that's happening in the United States right now um, with all these different factions, um, you know, including people who uh, on the say like the alt-right, for example, that believe in these um, intense conspiracy theories. And I, I think the reason that they do, a lot of the reasons that people choose to, to go down these like uh, pass, um, some of which seem really extreme to us because we're not in it. <laughs> uh, feels less extreme when you're a part of a thing that's a community or, or an idea or whatever it is, is because it's identity based, right? So, so, um, the people who are believing in conspiracy theories, uh, believe them because it puts, brings them, it makes them part of a community wherein they can have this identity that they somehow know something that everyone else doesn't. Right. It makes them special, makes them part of the special tribe. And um, I think for uh, a lot of Americans who have been divorced from their heritages, you know, mm-hmm. um, because America is such a – it's not so much that it's a um, melting pot as it is that America is a place that likes to erase the past. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, even if it's very foundation, um, America was uh, – the United States, rather, was founded on the on these on this idea that it was going to be separate from Britain and then create its own, do its own thing and forget about the past, forget about uh, the government and taxes and all this kind of stuff, and um, basically take this land and do something, uh, start uh, afresh, you know. Right. And so, um, for I think for a lot of uh, especially people of European descent, uh, mm-hmm. but. You know, just about everyone that comes to America, um, many, many people, many people like lose their roots. You know, and when you lose your roots, when you don't know where you come from, um, I think then eventually it comes to bite you because there's no. Um, then you lose your identity. You know, you lose a core sense of identity. And many people have been able to find a way to like find a healthy way to replace that. You know, so that's why I think Americans uh, spend a, are so work focused because their identities have become work. Yeah, that's work why the is, first thing you ask somebody is, "What do you do when you?" Meet yeah, somebody? totally, yeah. absolutely, that's right. Yeah, so that that's how you you know that's how you identify. Or um, if you're, uh, say, like a teenager and you don't have work to, for it to become your identity, then you know you're a skater or you're a football player, or you're um, a homecoming queen, or whatever, you know, like all of these kind of stereotypes and all these different things, these, or uh, archetypes as they were, yeah. those are archetypes are a way for people to find their identities, you know, um, and all the different tribes that we fall into, little subcultures that we fall into, they're all ways for people to find their identity. So the search, I think, for all of these things that are really deeply historical and, uh, things like that that i guess instagram would call authentic <laughs> right, right, right. <laughs> like like basketry um or living in a cabin and then you know splitting your wood with an axe all that kind of stuff um 
harkens back to giving people an identity um, when they have lost their cultural context. You know, they, they sort of like uh, they know that that vaguely that that's where they come from, from right. to, to some degree, you know, and so they're really glomming on to that. Um, and but also creating a create in the, in the process of creating a new identity for themselves, you know, um, and I think that is, in a sense, why things like Instagram becomes so powerful because it's a platform for wherein you are crafting your identity mm. and identity is such a huge part of who we are as human beings. You know, it's like a central driver of our behavior, um, to act consistent with an identity. And, and since you have to act consistently, you also, um, need to create your reality. You know, you have to, you have to create that identity, uh, in order to be consistent with it. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Back to this focus on, uh, you know, figuring out what uh, what sorts of projects you're drawn to, creative projects you're drawn to. I believe I've heard you say this before, and, and uh, you can correct me if I'm wrong. <laughs> it might be somebody saying this about you. But, uh, mm -hmm. but, uh, but part of your work about writing or, or co-writing new narratives about minority cultures, about indigenous cultures. What does, oh, yeah. that, what does that mean to you, to, to co-write uh, new narratives? Um, well, so I think, you know, in the past... Um, uh, journalists are, are, have been known to, um, do a lot of things, uh, where they just kind of parachute into a, a place, you know? Mm -hmm. So, um, there's this, a lot of this kind of like old school journalism where there's even this kind of bravado, like, oh, I should be, if I'm a good journalist, I should be able to drop into any place in the world and make a story out of it. Right. And uh, I've literally heard those words or read those words inside of stories before from, from the, 2000s you yeah. know it's kind of amazing <laughs> yeah yeah right and um the the audacity of that is um maybe that's fine if you're thinking about parachuting into a, a war zone or something like that but even that is just it's just there's so much like uh ego involved with that idea mm -hmm. you know a, a good journalist goes in with um i think the the, the feeling anyway in journalism now is um, you go in with uh, an openness and understanding that you don't know everything um, and that it's far from it and that you go in and um, will uh, learn as you go what's actually going on. Let, let reality unfold before you and begin to understand what's going on. And um, the best journalists out there, um, especially uh, in terms of photojournalism, a lot of it happens where over – weeks, months, and years. So some of the best photographic projects um, happen with people who have spent dedicated a portion of their lives towards a certain story or a certain culture or community. Um, and they just spend so much time there that uh, a part of them becomes a part of that, uh, that like the place itself or the people becomes a part of who they are, you know, um, and they leave a little portion of themselves there as well. So it's hard to report on something. I think uh, cultural stories are perhaps the most difficult stories to report on. They take the most amount of time in order to do them right because human cultures are the most complicated things to understand. Yeah. We're the most different from each other, you know, and the human culture is so rich. There's so much to it. And um, understanding something like an indigenous culture um, is perhaps the most difficult um, task of all because you're you're asking to understand something which is completely different than your your point of reference. And mm -hmm. it's the it's really difficult to even understand understand how different uh, another culture is from your own because you can't even conceive of it. 
mm-hmm. um, until you get out there and spend enough time to where you as a person actually change. Um, and so in uh, but the other on the other hand, a good journalist also is usually a person uh, needs to be a person that has some ambassadorial quality, you know, like um, it's so in theory. The ideal journalist would be someone who comes from the community that they're reporting on. Right. Right. So someone like, like's grown up there and knows it um, intimately well. But the the problem lies um, in the fact that it, if you come from a, a small community of some kind, um, you're not from the from a dominant culture. Then you t- typically when you're writing a story um the audience is not typically just for your own community if it is then kudos great <laughs> <laughs> but but typically it's not the the audience um wants to know and understand this community a little bit better is going to be from a, a different culture than your own um and so um if you come from that small community so there needs to be um people who act as bridges, you know, as ambassadors between worlds who understand both cultures very well. You have to be able to write for or photograph for or to explain, to find a way to visually bridge how the mainstream world thinks and then also how the culture you're covering or the community you're covering thinks. Mm. And so there is this in-between that needs to happen, right? Like um, I think an easy way to explain that might be something like, um, say, uh, a picture of a, let's just say I take a photograph, um, of a, of the kind of, uh, stereotypical salmon in the river from underwater, you know, so you get a picture underwater of a salmon swimming by like some rocks in a river, um, from the point of view of like, um, say, uh, the Alaskan clinket, that picture might say any number of things like the things that people will take away from that. The interpretation of that uh, is going to be, Oh, look at this, this fish here. This is something beautiful, something to be revered. Um, something that our ancestors have eaten for a long time, et cetera. You know, there's all these different interpretations, but the mainstream culture, you just look at that and, and, and say, Oh, this is a fish, but they, they're not getting out of it. This, incredible richness of information that the the clinket person is getting out of that mm-hmm. that salmon photograph because the salmon that photograph is speaking to the local place that they understand really well they understand the river they understand what the meaning of the salmon is to the their people and all these kinds of things you know there's this incredible depth of richness of understanding that they'll have about that photograph and what it means versus the outside world so in order to uh, bridge that gap. You need to have people, journalists, who are able to explain um, through photographs, through captions, through writing, through video, whatever it is, that the way that that fish is seen by the by the Clinket community, its symbolic importance, um, its literal importance, you know, all, all of these different things, all the issues that play into how the fish um, exist in the world, you know, is it a farmed fish? Is it a farm salmon coming from a farm? Or is it a wild one? You know, um, them returning to the same river year after year. All these different kinds of things are little bits of information that needs to be embedded in there. And there are different ways that we can do that. As a photographer, we can find ways of giving information in our photographs. And we try to embed 
as many different bits of that as we can. But at the same time, too, no matter what, one of the great powers of photography is the ability for it to be flexibly interpreted. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, so we, you know, there's no way that we'll ever be able to to to, to change that. But how you, um, a big part of it isn't just in the photographs that you take, but it's it's also in the edit, which means um, when you after you take five thousand photographs for a story, which ones of those. Uh, 5,000 are going to be printed, you know, which ones are going to make up the story? Because you're, you're going to run less than 10 of them. So of those 5,000 photographs, which one actually tell the story of the community or tell the story of the fish farm or whatever it is, you know, like wh wh what are those things um, actually speaks to it. And in this particular case, we're talking about writing narratives and co-writing narratives. So we're, we're, we're really talking about is cultural issues. So when, um, when we're photographing cultural issues, not only do I want to be able to give my interpretation of the culture um, and my understanding of how the culture sees the world, but I also need to, to ask them. And you know, I think it's really important to present the people as they want to be seen themselves. So that they, you know, because that's their sense of identity. Um, that's who they think they are and that then it embodies all the things that they consider to be important and to be a priority. So we ask them um, and work together with them, ask them a lot of questions and, and say, who are you? How do you want to present yourself? You know, and it comes out in different ways. Like, for example, one of the things that you don't do is by asking us uh, like a portrait, uh, someone you take a portrait of to wear different clothes. Yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> to pose in a certain way or to, uh, you know, go stand on top of that mountain and look majestic or whatever, you know, right. Right. Mm, you ask them to choose the things that best display who they are, you know, and, and different individuals have different interpretations. But if they come from that community and that culture, then they're going to be presenting themselves as they know themselves to be. And so I'm not saying that every journalist needs to um needs to have this sort of uh, advocacy perspective, you know, to, to give their perspective of just how the people want themselves to be seen. Because I do think it is important to be able to have many different perspectives. You know, you want to be able to have outsider perspectives as well. Mm. Um, I think a good example of uh, this might be, say, in like the case of, say, Saudi Arabia, where um, if you were to do a story on uh, like something, some some kind of heinous crime, like the killing of Jamal Khashoggi, the right, um, right. journalist, um, you don't want to just take the Saudi point of view. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> yeah. It's important to be able to have an outsider perspective, to look at things from a objective cultural point of view. But as also, how interesting is it? to be able to see the point of view from a Saudi perspective and not just the official royal Saudi narrative, like the government narrative of what happened, but, but also what does a typical Saudi person see mm -hmm. and like, um, think about this story, you know, how are they interpreting this kind of thing? Culturally speaking, um, why do they think about this idea that their, um, that their prince might be, um, might have murdered a journalist. Um, like these are issues that we don't typically look at. We always ignore, um, well, historically speaking, journalists have really um, ignored what 
the community that they're covering, especially when it's something that's a, real, a really different culture, mm-hmm. how that culture actually thinks of itself, what mm-hmm. what they think and how they feel, et cetera. And so as a result, what we have is just this like very colonial interpretation of the world around us. You know, yeah. I mean, I think yeah. a great um, way to, to look at that is to say, like, look at something like the um, so, uh, you know, for Americans, for example, you know, the, the difference between Ghana and Zimbabwe is very small. Yeah. <laughs> right? most, yeah. most Americans would think, oh, this is Africa. And um, even in their interpretation of Africa, they would think like, oh, when you're thinking about Africa, Africa is a place where babies starve, you know, where, where um, kids are uh, scrawny and malnourished, um, or uh, they are thinking to themselves uh, that um, this is a place where there is um, a ton of crime and poverty, et cetera, et cetera. And that, that happens. That the reason that we think those things is because we, as journalists over time, historically have crafted this narrative of Africa being a place with problems and only problems. And only because we report on issues that we find to be significant or interesting. So, and those tend to be things that are eye-catching, headline-catching kind of things, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. So like there's a war going on and so there's a bunch of famine and people are starving to death. So you go and photograph those things from the outsider perspective. You never really understand it. Or about the issues, like why did this war start? Why is there famine? You know, is the famine actually related to the war in some way, you know? Um, or is the war just making the famine worse? Uh, and we start to like actually get in. Let's just say um, we do it the right way, or maybe not the right way, but a different way, you know, to offer the different perspective and go and embed and be a part of that, um, be a part of that culture. And say like go and live in Sudan for some for some months, covering that situation and to really understand it um, and learn the language and begin to see what's going on there from the point of view of someone who lives there. You know, I think some of the best reporting happens when you get to that place because you get to know the local people, start to see their stories and their trials and tribulations from the ground level, you know. Um, and uh, in the case of, say, like Sudan, uh, for example, uh, I heard a great piece of reporting that was about just a, a guy who uh, won the U.S. lottery uh, for immigration. So he could immigrate to the United States uh, because he won the random draw and it would get him out of um, get him out of Sudan. Mm-hmm. But in the process, you know, we, we, he was uh, the journalist. Uh, took a bunch of photographs and talked about his day-to-day life. You know, where actually he wasn't in Sudan anymore. I'm sorry, he was in uh, I think he's in Ethiopia but as a refugee. And so um, I was following him around and looking at all of the kind of discrimination that he that he faced as a Sudanese refugee. Oh, here I am um, uh, running from the cops and authorities all the time, worried about getting cracked down on, worried about how I'm going to get my food. Um, but then also these moments of joy too, like hanging out with friends in the darkness because you want to turn on the lights at night for afraid that you attract attention from the police. But then but then actually what you're doing in the dark is sitting there watching movies on a laptop, mm-hmm. you know, with everyone and watching like, you know, the uh, watching Iron Man or whatever. <laughs> you know, it's like so informative because when we miss out on the point of view of what uh, 
the of the people who were reporting on and miss their uh, uh, that was a in particular a really great individual viewpoint you know but it gives you an idea of like how different you might see the world when you look at it from not the outsider viewpoint but to look at it from the insider viewpoint what is it like yeah. we start to see like oh actually life um it, this life is not just full of terror <laughs> and intimidation, but it's full of joy and love and all of the things that humans really um, can get behind, you know, the, the things that we that we all appreciate. Um, and it connects us, you yeah. know, it connects, yeah. connects us. Yeah, uh, yeah. This, all of this is, is something that I've been thinking increasingly about in the last number of months, uh, you know, how how representation plays out in, in media and in storytelling, uh, in journalism, uh, both as a writer and as a podcaster, you know, about oh, uh, yeah. about how, what sort of stories uh, am I telling and, and, and of being mindful, there's a tremendous responsibility in storytelling. I think I come from a school of, of journalism where that wasn't really necessarily talked about and, and still is, is, you know, has a long way to go. Uh, myself included, uh, but it's something that uh, become much more aware of in in recent months, and and want to continue to think about because me being uh, a Canadian, you know, a, a white Canadian at that, uh, you know, for European ancestry, uh, I think there's a tendency to just assume that uh, when you're writing for the dominant culture uh, and and being the dominant culture, there's almost this assumed air of authority over over any subject, right? Again, I, I think that kind of goes back to that. I can parachute into a place and be able to write about it and, and not think about any ethical considerations. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, but, but uh, and I don't think I'm even getting towards a question here, but other, other than to say uh, thanks for giving me more to think about in, in terms of your work, and, and I really appreciate that. And, um, and, I, and I'm still learning and hoping that there's more uh, people out there telling stories from all different perspectives uh, so that uh, we get to hear people tell their own stories to others and, and also hear, you know, the important times when it is uh, worthwhile for someone to tell a story of another place uh, and do it in, a, in the appropriate ways. Yeah, well, th uh, thank you, Martin, for, yeah. for, for doing that and being interested in those things. I think, um, it, you know, the, the issue of interpretation or of uh, representation rather is um, a really big issue. And the more that I'm, journalists consider it start thinking and, and talking about these issues the 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 better it will get you know it's it, it's a, such an important thing and you know it's so easy to avoid those issues <laughs> yeah 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 right <clears throat> so i appreciate that uh anyhow uh, i've taken up uh, plenty of your time today i just want to say thanks i uh, appreciate the time that you've spent uh, it's been been great talking to you and uh, and wish you the best hey thanks martin same to you That's it for the show. Thanks for listening, and I hope you liked it. If you enjoyed the show, do me a favor. Hit subscribe, leave a rating and review, and most of all, tell someone else about it. If you like this one, head back and check out episode 61 with Brittany Muma or episode 49 with Chris Burkhardt, both great photographers as well. If you want to get in touch, a few ways you can. You can send me an email at storyuntoldpodcast at gmail.com. You can follow along on Facebook at facebook.com slash storyuntoldpodcast. You can also find me on Twitter at Martin underscore Bauman. Theme music for the show is by Dr. Turtle off the album You Um, I'll Ah. Once again, I'm Martin Bauman, and this was a story untold. See you next time. Mm -hmm.